Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave, and I'm your host. This episode of Stand Up Tragedy Replayed is dedicated to some of the performers who will be playing at our first live night since the Edinburgh Festival, Tragic Christmas. Yes, that's right, we're back. On the 12th of December, we'll be gathering at the Dogstar in Brixton for a festive dose of catharsis, celebrating everything tragic about the holiday season. This is an event for all of us, whether you love Christmas or you hate Christmas, whether you aren't a fan of Christmas shopping and you see tragedy in the commercialization, whether you can afford to buy Christmas presents this year, whether you have had, like me, traumatic family events on Christmas and every time it comes round it sort of triggers those those memories of sadness. Whether you're still cringing from the memories of last year's office party, whether you're still remembering the moment that you discovered that Father Christmas doesn't exist. However you feel about Christmas, Tragic Christmas is the place to come. If you want to have a happy Christmas, the thing to do to remember all of the things that can be sad about Christmas, to have that cathartically removed from your system, so then you're ready when the 24th comes around to really have a happy Christmas. And there is no escaping Christmas, just like there is no escaping tragedy. The run-up to Christmas is well and truly here. So if you have any Christmas-related tragedies to share, we'd love it if you hashtag them Tragic Xmas. We're going to be sharing our tragic stories, links to tragic events. We're going to be sharing them and we'd like you to share them too. Christmas is a time to gather with old friends and Stand Up Tragedy will be doing just that. We've got a fantastic lineup of artists, nearly all of whom have done tragedy with us before. I'm very pleased to announce that we have comedian Beck Hill, who's coming back to the Stand Up Tragedy stage for the first time since 2012. We've got scientific, academic, stand-up Steve Cross. We've got James Mackay, who's going to be doing a Victorian recital. We've got music from The Sound of the Ladies, aka Martin Zoltz Oswick. We've got spoken word from Lucy Ayrton and Richard Tyrone Jones. We've got the saddest Christmas story ever written from The Superbard. We've got tragic true stories of Christmas woes from Radcliffe Royds and Kit Lovelace is going to be playing some tragic songs on the piano for the audience to sing along with and our headline act for Tragic Christmas performing with us for the first time is the amazing comedian Felicity Ward and we're really looking forward to having her on the stand-up tragedy stage stand-up tragedy This episode of Stand Up Tragedy Replayed is going to remind us just how great the performers who've performed for us before are. We're going to kick off with poet Lucy Ayrton, who first performed with us at Stand Up Tragedy at the Dog Star in March earlier this year. Lucy has written a poem exclusively for Tragic Christmas, so we're looking forward to hearing what she's come up with, and we really love it when performers make a special effort to write something new for our night, so thank you, Lucy, for that. Here's Lucy live with Lullabies to Make Children Cry. Hello. Okay, hello, audience. 
if um, so, I have some questions to ask you as an introduction to my poems. Um, who has been in love? If you've been in love, please say, yeah. Yeah. Who has then subsequently fallen out of love? If you've subsequently fallen out of love, say, yeah. yeah. Um, who would like to hear my most tragic poem? If you'd like to hear my most tragic poem, please say, yeah. Yeah. OK. Um, all you people who didn't answer yes to any of those questions, this poem is for you. I agree, audience interaction is embarrassing. Um, this, is, this is my most tragic of my poems. Um, it's called Let Me Be Lost. I haven't told you yet, and I won't. But it's only a matter of time, because I talk in my sleep. I always have. Should have said something sooner, but I've been really busy lately making my own clothes and trying not to be a disappointment. I've been trying to wear skirts more and flirt less and do things that hurt less and be quieter. And prior to this conversation, I was doing fine. But it was only a matter of time because I've always been the kind of girl who thinks a lot about what might be an acceptable level of deceit, the kind of girl who feels guilty about feeling guilty about how much she eats, the kind of girl to who herbal tea and tequila both taste exactly the same. <laughs> they both taste of defeat. The kind of girl who's been really busy lately doing the morning yoga and trying not to be a disappointment and trying not to say that sometimes I want to eat less apples and more cake. Sometimes I want to take the seventh shot of Calvados and drink it down and let the frown melt off my face and drip onto the dance floor. Sometimes I want more than me. Sometimes I want to dance until my head spins and not push boys away when they tell me about what could be. Sometimes I want to let me be lost. And I haven't told you that, but it's only a matter of time because I talk in my sleep and I've been dreaming about dragons and towers and knights and gingerbread houses and roses and spells. I've been dreaming about forests and dark paths, and wolves. I've been dreaming about being lost, and I've been not wanting to pull myself back into the day, and I didn't want to say any of this to you. I've been really busy lately, eating organic rice cakes and trying not to be a disappointment, but I can't. They're not real cake. <laughs> And for your sake, I've been not following breadcrumb trails, but I can't not wonder where they lead. I can't stop reading fairy tales. I won't stop believing in magic. I haven't told you yet that sometime you'll need to let me be lost. Thank you. really interested to hear what that new poem is going to be like. Almost a year ago, in a cold, snow-filled January, The Sound of the Ladies performed for our stand-up tragedy audience. He performed a set of sad songs about growing up, being in love and dealing with the tragedies of death. 
the song he sang that night, The Only Girl Who Would Ever Break My Heart, really transfixed me. It's one of those songs which I play really regularly and really touches kind of emotions that I can't really describe. So I was really pleased that he came along and performed with us and introduced me to that song. Thank you very much. Uh, I do quite a lot of gigs where the tone is relatively light and I don't get to do my really, my really gloomy songs. So I'm going to do my really gloomy songs and make you thoroughly miserable. <laughs> uh, this is a song about... Uh, it's got a really sad story. I mean, we've just had some really energetic stuff and a really nice stand-up comedian and the story behind this is genuinely really sad. So I don't really, don't really want to tell it now. Um, no, it's, a, it's not a funny story. It's just a really sad story. Uh, okay, so... <laughs> 1997, I was about 19, and I, um, I, was going, I went to New York for the first time, and my girlfriend at the time, she was out in New Jersey, she was working there, because her dad uh, had, a, had an office out there, he, had to, he ran this little company that had an office in, in Britain and an office in America. And I got off the plane in New York, and uh, we were going to have this great holiday together, travel around, go to Boston, go to New York, have a couple of weeks... I got off the, tra- the, the plane, gave her a call, because I, I was in New York, she was in New Jersey, and went, hey, it's great, I've just landed, it's amazing, New York's incredible. And she burst into tears and said, my best friend has just died. Uh, so we had a relatively nice trip, given the circumstances. Um, but uh, there's not much of a story behind it, much more of a story than that. I feel a little bit self-conscious even writing a song about this, because this isn't my tragedy, this is her tragedy. It wasn't my best friend that died, uh, although he, I, it was me that got the jet-lagged tears of uh, his girlfriend in a payphone somewhere in New York before they had been on mobile phones. So um, actually fairly recently I wrote the song about, about um, that happening. Uh, I felt like I had enough time and distance to purloin that tra- tragedy as my own. So uh, this... Um, and also, this is kind of tied into a lot of stuff about um, being a big fan of the film Heathers. So that kind of leavens it a bit. So this is, this is a song uh, called The Only Girl Who Would Ever Break My Heart. To Greyhound to New Jersey As exotic as that sounds And asked if I could make love to you there Inside a stranger's house It's not as if I got turned on by the thought that you might cry But back then That was my answer to everything, that's why 
think about what happened It still leaves a nasty taste She was just a girl With a tambourine around her waist He said our bodies are A mystery to us But you didn't even know Where your beauty was What I've told you If I'd known from the start You would be the only girl Who would ever break my heart Sound of the Ladies is Martin Ostwick or Martin Zoltz Ostwick 
as he now is. And people listening may know him as Martin the Soundman from the podcast Answer Me This with Helen Saltzman and Ollie Mann. Recently, he formed a music project called Existential Meltdown, who have made an album called Kill It With Fire. This album is a fundraising album for the amazing organisation Arts Emergency and you can find it on Bandcamp. It's existentialmeltdown.bandcamp.com forward slash kill it with fire. Now, Arts Emergency is a organisation that is really close to AHA at Stand Up Tragedy as well. And in fact, that's one of the big things about Tragic Christmas. Because it's a Christmas show, we wanted to do it to give to other people. So it's a fundraiser for Arts Emergency and Stand Up Tragedy really believe in what Arts Emergency does. All proceeds from the tickets that we sell are going to go to Arts Emergency. They're £7 if you come on the night but if you buy them in advance from our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk they're just £5 and we're going to have so much tragedy to share with you that it's really a pleasure for me to be bringing this night to you and it's even more of a pleasure for the money that we do take on the doors and through selling the fanzine to be going to Arts Emergency. For two more pounds you can take the tragedy home with you. We're launching the Stand Up Tragedy fanzine starting in December. We're collecting together anything that works well in a written or pictorial format that's about tragedy and sharing it with you guys for £2. So back to today's show. One of the people who will be coming up at Tragic Christmas is Beck Hill, who is a really talented stand-up comedian. She made a really fantastic children's show that I saw this year at the Edinburgh Festival, Beck and Tom's Awesome Laundry. It made me laugh, it made me cry. It was a really great show. At the Edinburgh Festival, I recorded a special live version of my other podcast, Getting Better Acquainted, with Beck and her podcast partner, Bridie Lee Kennedy, which, if you want to check that out, you can find over on www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk or you can find it through iTunes. Bryony, who produces the podcast, was in the audience that day and she caught up with Beck after that recording to ask her what she thinks about tragedy. Would you like to explain what your your children's show is? My uh, children's show is called Beck and Tom's Awesome Laundry and in a nutshell it's about uh, Tom taking me to the laundry to do the washing and I don't want to do it. Our performers present tragedy to adults. What's it like trying to present the same ideas to children? The kids follow it and they sort of relate to it, but it's the adults that are the ones that get affected by the story the most. And I think that's because a lot of more adults read into the story and they connect it with things that have happened in their life and it conjures up feelings of nostalgia and, and loss and things like that. And I think it's a little, it becomes more of an event for, for adults. So we found that um, kids come out, they love it, they love the bum jokes, poo jokes, things like that. Um, but it's the adults that come out and go, you made me cry. And then we think, yeah, we've done a good show. <laughs> Find out more about Beck and check out her live dates that are coming up over on www.beckhillcomedian.com. 
So we've got one more performer to share with you today. We're going to finish with a tragic true story from Radcliffe Royds. Radcliffe is a familiar face on the true storytelling scene in London. He is the guy who hosts the Brixton branch and starting last month, also the King's Cross branch of the true storytelling night, Spark London. Here he is at the Leicester Square Theatre back in 2012 at one of our first live shows. I am tall, blonde and handsome, and I'm not a murderer. I just want to make that clear after the last act. Um, and my story, I'm afraid, is going to lower the tone very early on in the evening. Because um, mine is a tale of tragedy. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the story of um, the end of my second marriage. The tragedy started at the beginning of my second marriage, but I, I saw it through to the end. I, I've had several wives, two of them are my own now. <laughs> this particular night, cast your minds back. It's the year 2001, I think it was. It was a late July evening. I was returning from Bournemouth, where I'd been on a minor cavort with friends. And I came back to my lovely house in Clapham. Some of you will know Clapham. And I put my key in the lock and it didn't turn. I tried it to the left, and I tried it to the right. And then I, I banged, as you do. <laughs> and I heard a whimpering on the stairs. And because I'm quite posh, obviously, I, <laughs> I have a letterbox. <laughs> so I'm now negotiating it's the second time I've been on my knees to this woman the first time got me into trouble in the first place and the second time as I negotiate the end of my marriage through a letterbox um, left me homeless it left me wifeless which turned out to be quite a good thing um, and completely stuck it was midnight, it was a Sunday night, and I did what any self-respecting person does, and I rang up a mate, and I said, oh, it's a disaster, I've been thrown out, I can't go home. And he was really nice, and he said, just come around, just come over. And I arrived, and he greeted me at the door, uh, gave me a huge hug, and then his girlfriend from behind him appeared with a large tray of pharmaceuticals. <laughs> Within an hour, I found my situation that improved dramatically. <laughs> and I didn't give a shit about anything. And I took to this solution like a duck takes to water, as people do. But what I didn't realise was that quite how far down this was going to take me. And the reason, funnily enough, that uh, Dave asked me to come to talk to you here is that I, I ended up living just around the corner from here but not in quite the way or in the circumstances to which I was used. So having started this maniacal drug <coughs> on crack cocaine, on heroin, on all these things, I know it's hard to believe. <laughs> From the back, you're probably thinking mid to late 30s. <laughs> You'd be wrong. I'm 24, it's been a hard life. <laughs> but... I got, I just, I got sucked in hugely, and I'd ripped off my friend, I'd ripped off all my other friends, my ex-wife pending, as she turned out to be, had alerted the entire world, my parents, and everybody like that, don't speak to him, 
He's gone mad. I was living, I was living in my car at this point. Um, and uh, so I had a totally carpeted estate, is one way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I, and I just could not stop. I just could not stop. And then it, I got lower and lower. And eventually, I, I got so desperate, I decided to ring my parents. <laughs> now, my mother is the sort of woman that brushes her hair to answer the telephone. <laughs> and I rang her and I said, Hi, Mum, how would it be if I came home for a few days? And she says, Oh, no, dear, our insurance wouldn't cover that. <laughs> she put the phone straight down. I luckily, through my connections with all these nefarious chemicals that I was now taking, had met a really amazing guy called Delroy. Or <laughs> well, actually, as he calls him, Delroy. And Delroy had a spiderweb tattoo across half his face, and he had trousers made out of beer mats. And he was a head of an operator just up the road in, in Soho. And he taught me this rather sort of clueless, posh kid who was sort of sinking into, into the morass how to support a drug habit in the West End. <coughs> and you did that by stealing chicken wings and meat out of Sainsbury's, basically. <laughs> Occasionally Asda, every little helps. <laughs> but I, I, actually, you're listening to the man, I got done for the most well-travelled leg of lamb in Britain. They put a tracking device in a leg of lamb. <laughs> well, I mean, really. If you, uh, how, how many people, hands up anyone's been to jail here? <laughs> Don't I feel lonely? <laughs> well, I have. Now, when you go to jail, you kind of want to have something with a shotgun or Brinks mat or, you know, something with a bit of meat to it. Well, I say meat. When you go in and they say, what are you in for? Oh, there you You know humiliation. <laughs> Cutting a very long story short, Delroy and I, what we did was we would go into Sainsbury's and we'd just fill up our bags with, with, with meat. And I actually was performing quite a useful social function. So for those of you who think I'm a thoroughly dis honest, distasteful person, you'd be right, but I wasn't, I wasn't without some use. And that was that the woman that does Meals on Wheels in Westminster, or Ben did, um, would pay us 50p in the pound. So if we had a £10 pack of steak, she'd pay us a fiver for it. She bought cheap meat to do the Meals on Wheels, so everybody was a win-win situation. <laughs> the police and this tracking device didn't see it that way. <laughs> and on the night in question that I, I had run my mother and she put the phone down, Delroy just said, oh, don't worry, you can come home with me. It wasn't like that. He sounds like he should be at the school games, but he just talked like that because he smoked so much crack, his throat had gone. And he told me, come with me. And uh, we went to his house, which was a skip. Um, <laughs> and I do tell everyone it was a convertible skip. It had a rag top. And he and I lived in this skip for about four months in Soho in the West End. But as the weather got colder and as it got rainier and as the shops that we could visit got further and further away. I don't know why we were so easy to spot me, six foot four, with my accent, Delroy with his spider web tattoo. <laughs> um, I decided that we needed, to, we needed to upgrade. I mean, after all, I'd been to public school. I was an educated man. And uh, I decided, Delroy, what do we need to do is rob a bank? 
I was quite high at the time. <laughs> anyway, I made this brilliant plan. We got high as kites. We thought, right, let's go for it. It wasn't, a, you know, to be honest, the only, the only training I'd had for this enterprise was training some steak out of Sainsbury's. But I reckoned that if you could get into a bank, you could just clear out the drawers. It was a bit naive, really. <laughs> and um, anyway, we got our shit together. We fine. God, got ready, hyped ourselves up, got to the bank, and it was Sunday morning. <laughs> well, I wasn't really, uh, I wasn't going to be deterred by that. Um, I'm glad you're with me. So that was shut, but there was a Portuguese cleaning crew going in. Now, my Portuguese is sketchy at the best of times. <laughs> I can get a couple of beers and a coffee, and that's about it. And Delroy, Delroy was a little more convincing if he just kept his face to one side <laughs> and shuffled. And um, anyway, we got into the bank. Anyway, we soon got discovered. It all kicked off, and I got arrested. Quite rightly, too. And, and Bob the Builder, have a go here, he parked his Nissan Irvan on my feet, and I was nicked. <laughs> Uh, the police thought it was Christmas. They'd cleared up all the missing meat mystery. <laughs> and I ended up in Wandsworth prison with crushed toes. My legs swelled up like kebab. Oh, God, I was in a very shit state, I probably said. Well, my legs got fatter and fatter, and my feet got bigger and bigger, and they even, even they decided I should go to hospital. Now, to get me from a prison where I deserve to be, to the hospital, where I needed to be, was an operation in itself. I, I couldn't get out of my cell until they cut a pair of trainers so that I could hobble like this. That's all I could do, I could hobble. It took three men to get me actually onto the loo because my legs were so, I was in a very bad way. Anyway, where they thought I was gonna run, I don't know, but they shackled me like this. Hard shackles, not handcuffs, steel shackles. And then on one end of the shackles, they, they, they shackled a, a guard on that side. And then they shackled another guard on that side. So I'm pinioned between these two huge, you know, screws. And, um, and they then put a leather belt around my waist on a 20-foot steel chain. <laughs> I was like Hannibal Lecter on a day out. <laughs> That's how society thought I should be dealt with. Well, they got me in the sort of, you know, there was a sort of, there was a wheelchair ambulance, actually, because it's the only way they could get us all in. And we got to Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, which has revolving doors. I don't know if you're familiar with those. <laughs> right, are you with me? Okay, so there's the three of us, shackled. <laughs> uh, trying to get in through the doors. And we could get in, the three of us, there was just enough room. But the guy on the chain, kept, <laughs> it kept jamming. So we were totally... Anyway, so by now, there was this hideous thing where the janitor came out. You had to undo the door, there's a crowd appearing. I'm thinking, God, I know somebody. <laughs> Whatever. And I went to the ultrasound bit and I got looked at. And the, the, the hospital's got a long corridor. And I'm quite tall. You'll have spotted that if you're sitting down. And I was quite tall. And there was a, a cousin of my second ex wife, Pending, as she turned out to be, uh, doing a Friends of the Hospital bookstore. <laughs> She saw me through the distance and went, Yoo-hoo! As I was not. She collapsed, she fainted, she was so shocked. The last time she'd seen me was in a white linen suit. 
<laughs> getting married in the, in the Algarve. And um, <laughs> it wasn't quite the, 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 what she expected. But the, the, the amazing thing was, as she collapsed, I mean, bearing in mind, I'd been living in a skip. I was now physically pinned between these two guys with a guy leading me on the chain. It was the first time that I saw myself as other people must see me. And at that point, the madness stopped. Thank you very much for listening. That's just a small sample of the performers who are going to be doing their thing at Tragic Christmas. Get sharing your Tragic Christmas moments with the hashtag Tragic Xmas. Tragic Christmas is happening on the 12th of December, £5 from the website in advance or £7 on the door. It's really going to be a great night. We haven't finished featuring all of our performers yet, so listen again next week for some more stand-up tragedy. Dry your eyes, it's time to go. This podcast was produced by Bryony Hawkins and recorded by Stephen Harvey. The music was produced by Sam Wilkinson, who can be contacted at radiojuan at yahoo.com. And our outro music was made by the Reactionaries and George Bruffer. Time to go.